Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. I know that Pastor Keith is going to answer uh, about non-questions that were kind of the same uh, in the same vein. So I know that he's going to take time about 15 minutes to answer those questions. Then I'll come back and I'll ask him some of the tough questions that we had as well. Is that good with you, Pastor Keith? That sounds great, Pastor JT. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, what, what we'll do tonight, guys, uh, first of all, thank you so much for investing in your own mental health as well as um, what you're hopefully going to gain from this and be able to uh, help you as you're helping other people. Um, and I so appreciate uh, your church that that deals with the issues at hand, right? We're not just talking about the gospel as some sort of concept that's out there um, and just sort of an ethereal, but we bring it down to a ground level and start talking about how we can really live this thing out properly. So um, I, I love being with your church, love being with Pastor JT, Pastor Bryson, worship was was fantastic. So here's what I'm hoping to do. Uh, a bunch of questions came in. There were nine, the first nine that came in. I'm going to drop into kind of three buckets. And I think when we give an overview of answering, I'll answer them very specifically, but they, they hit a broad enough kind of scope that I think it'll set the table for what we'll maybe call the lightning round. If you want to come up, uh, then Pastor JT, and we'll just, you know, rip through as many of these as we possibly can uh, so that you can leave here with with answers uh, to what it is that, um, that you wanna know. So quick reminder of a couple of things we talked about last week that are gonna be concepts that'll, that'll help us as we're starting to frame the rest of our discussion tonight. Um, the first concept was the Johns Hopkins continuum of care. Remember we talked last week about resistance, resilience, and recovery. Resistance are those coping skills that we learn every day in life. And what, one of the questions came in and was asking if by resistance we meant survival skills. And it, it's, it's not necessarily skills to survive in life, but skills to thrive in life, right? So how do we deal with life's challenges, life's setbacks, life's opportunities, kind of those early coping skills that let us deal with everything that happens in life and still be able to in, uh, both uh, move forward and enjoy. It's not necessarily how do we, how do we survive a self-protection. These are our basic life skills that we use to journey through life. And when they're well-developed at the beginning, we have resistance toward the kind of things that just happen in life. There were setbacks, there were sad moments, there were stressful things that happened, there were disappointments, and a, someone with a good healthy resistance handles those and continues to move through them. Sometimes life, either through our, you know, our fault sometimes, quite honestly, or through the faults of others, or just sometimes life, we get knocked down if we were considering this like a journey. And the skills in that place would be what we would call resilience. Is there something on the inside that would allow me to get back up and now reapply what I know to be true that worked in the resistance phase? So can I, despite getting knocked down, can I self-examine enough to know that, okay, I'm going to survive this. Now, what are the skills and can I reincorporate what I know as a coping skills to resistance? Sometimes the falls and the bumps in life uh, are such that we can't get back up. And, and one of the highest dignifying things, honestly, that we can do for another person is to help, but simultaneously trust 
that they can get back up, right? One of the most crippling things we do to children is every time they fall, every time they fail, is that we jump right to, you know, restructuring their environment so that it always works. And it's ultimately going to be emotionally debilitating for a child if you pick them back up. What you're telling them is, I, I don't trust that you can figure out how to re-engage and reincorporate the skills that you were using while you were doing well. But sometimes life hits us hard enough that we have to, we can't just get up and start walking again. We have to go to the emergency room. We have to receive triage. And that's the place of recovery. It's a place where we go to the mental health specialist, the, the medical doctors, whatever it might be. And we receive something in that place that now allows us to go back and apply resistance and journey through, through life with those coping skills. So remember that continuum of care. It's gonna be very helpful as we answer a lot of these questions. Resistance, resilience, recovery. Second thing we talked about last week is how we're defining kind of mental and emotional health. And it has two sides of the same coin. One that happens generally and one that we're seeing really in the difficulty of the, the pandemic. And when we speak of issues or challenges around uh, mental and emotional health, the first type would be an abnormal response to a normal life situation that overwhelms my coping skills. So in normal life situations, I have a setback, I didn't do well on a test, that, that happens. That's not something that would be outside of the ordinary. I lost a game, right? I didn't make the lead in my play. Any number of normal setbacks, stuff that happens, and I have an abnormal response. That would slide me into a debilitating depression or would slide me over into a the high end of the anxiety scale and a, and a panic attack where it would send me on a murderous rampage. We can look and say, that's probably a, a, a bit much of a response given the situation, an abnormal response to a normal life situation and it overwhelms my coping skills. What we talked primarily about last week was this idea of sometimes we have a normal response to an abnormal life situation. A global pandemic that lasts for a year would certainly qualify as an extraordinarily abnormal situation. And the most healthy, normal response to some of the conditions of this wild, abnormal situation in which we find ourselves is enough that my coping systems and coping strategies and coping skills get overwhelmed. So it's important that we understand both of those in light of the continuum of, of care and uh, or the continuum of treatment and these two definitions I wanna jump into a couple of uh, three series of these questions and uh, we'll start to unpack some things and then hit our lightning round. Uh, two questions came in. One asked this with regards to our coping skills. It said, is alcohol a good stress relief? I very briefly touched on this last week and I'm, I'm glad the question was asked so I can unpack a little bit further. So is alcohol a good stress relief? And then a second question that was kind of related was how do you deal with teens and college students who become more addictive and consumed with electronics to help them cope with depression, anxiety, et cetera? And what are some of the practical ways to encourage them and transition them back to society? Okay, these are two um, uh, questions that fall under the definition of, of emotional challenge, where I would say they're a normal response to an abnormal life situation that's overwhelmed my coping skills. Um, Alcohol is not necessarily uh, an improper coping mechanism, right? Alcohol in and of itself, um, 
it produces relaxation. Well, a lot of things we can do to relax. Sometimes you, you know, you, you, you exercise, sometimes you come home and kick your shoes off and put on your favorite slippers. Sometimes you snuggle with your dog. Sometimes you put on a movie. Sometimes you eat comfort food, right? There's a lot of things we do to, to relax and alcohol certainly produces relaxation. So inherently, just by definition, it's not inherently bad, right? It produces relaxation. Uh, it can also increase feelings of euphoria. So coping skills are what we do throughout life to help relax, what we do throughout life to, to feel better, and alcohol produces that. Um, sliding over to the video games, right? The video games, electronics, those are also not necessarily an improper coping mechanism. What they are is, is a form of escapism. And I know some of us that are of, of maybe a, you know, we didn't necessarily grow up with electronics. We can look and go, gosh, why are you so in your phone yet we'll put on a movie or, you know, we'll read a book. And what we're saying is, well, a book expands my mind. Yeah, but a lot of what we read is escapism. And that is a healthy coping skill to be able to disengage from the pressure and stress of the world, to, to get lost in a movie, right, that we enjoy and we you know, for a moment in time, we're somewhere else or to get lost in a good book or, or to get lost in a video game or some, something else that's uh, happening online. It's, it's okay, right? Those are normal alcohol, use of video games, escapism. Those are normal coping skills that help us under normal times. The, the challenge comes in is under something like a global pandemic, right? Where all of a sudden the, the, the situation is so abnormal that a, a drink a, a drink you know after work that that isn't enough to sort of help me relax so it becomes two drinks after work and then as this thing drags on it becomes four drinks after work and i and now my coping skill of one or two now runs the risk of becoming uh, abuse rather than just use right in fact it's it's it would be the case of our video games as well and those forms of escapism. We, when, when the situation is so extraordinary, it's not just that, hey man, I'm gonna go up and play some black ops for 40 minutes, right? It's, I'm gonna sit up there for four days and just disengage from the world, put on my headset and I'm lost and I don't have to deal with what's in front of me. And the longer this abnormal situation drew itself out, the, the, the more I need that form of coping to the point where that coping now becomes actually something that becomes detrimental to my life, especially when life starts to return to normal. Because now I'm engaging in a behavior to try to deal with the crazy situation, the situation dissipates, and now I have a potentially problematic behavior. By the way, it's, it's no different than the, the sort of healthy things people turn to, right? A lot of people started working out, and now, you know, as a way to cope, and then this thing drug on and now they work out and work out and work out and work out. Some people started to eat a little bit more and ate and ate and ate and ate. In fact, I, I, I've been joking as we seeing people reemerge from the from quarantines and things like that, that, you know, that COVID has either made you a drunk, a chunk or a hunk, right? Because, and, and the reasoning for being a drunk, a chunk or a hunk is because a normal coping skill had to kind of become an inflated coping skill in other words, it got overwhelmed to help me handle this uh, abnormal situation in which we find ourselves. So what can I do about it? And 
where let me let me speak specifically about alcohol because one of the things alcohol does is it helps me relax which helps me initially fall asleep the problem with alcohol especially consumed in the quantities that we honestly are seeing during the pandemic uh, is it doesn't help you ever hit restful sleep it helps you skip the through the early stages of sleep now here's the problem is when i'm dealing with something stressful right my mind is racing and it's before bed and we've all laid in bed and it's amazing how you can't think of a solution to anything until you try to go to bed then you can literally solve all the world's problems right we got the answer to world peace you're, you're drifting off and it's like bing your eyes open and your brain is firing and you're thinking my goodness i can't i can't turn it off the temptation would be that alcohol would help me turn it off and it does but here's the challenge as the most creative times for the human brain are both as you're drifting off to sleep and just as you're waking up musicians authors painters they all describe uh, 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 inventors the the ideas that come to them just as they're drifting off or just as they're emerging from sleep because there's something that happens in the brain called alpha waves it's these long slow sort of looping brain waves and it's just a time of incredible creativity so what happens is if i go to sleep tense or stressed from the day and i'm like okay i'm not going to think about it i'm going to read a book i'm going to shut the book i'm going to shut my eyes and just as your brain starts to relax now it's going to start processing all the things i've had bottled up and it's like where are these thoughts coming from and i'm you know i can't stop thinking about them and we're tempted to turn to alcohol to 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 just sort of skip me over that stage and drop me right to sleep and it does the only problem is i never get into restful sleep it keeps you from stage 4 keeps you from rapid eye movement sleep so you can fall right asleep after a bunch of drinks but you wake up tired and it's not rejuvenating to 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 the body and to the mind um what i would suggest to help with this idea of what do we do with stress kind of before bed the best thing and it feels counterintuitive is actually to talk to to get those things that i've been wrestling with in my mind or in my emotions and to 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 release them out of my mouth here here's a concept we're going to use quite a bit tonight your emotions are like a balloon okay so we all have a you know we all can can envision a balloon and there's times where it's you know it's got some air in it and it has shape then there's times where you put more air in it and and then you hit that point where it's like the skin is like so thin and you you just know if you put in one more one more puff of air it's going to pop that that's how our emotions are and we've all been at that point particularly during this pandemic where we feel like if just one more thing one more thing lands on my plate one more disappointment happens one more setback i'm going to what i'm going to explode we've all used that language because we know the the feeling of when our emotions are okay and when we just can't take it anymore now there's two ways to get air out of a balloon keep shoving air in until it explodes out or to let it out the same way that it went in for our emotions the the end of the balloon that sort of let's air out from this giant state down to a little bit more manageable place the the way that god's given us to do that is actually through talking so when you and i man it's been one of those days weeks months 
2020, right? It's the year of stretched balloons with everything going on. It's when I talk, when I can look at somebody and go, man, I am stressed, man, I am worried about this. By the way, there, there are spiritual components to prayer, but there's a, a, an actual psychological component to prayer too. When I talk to God, when I reveal to him what's on my heart, the things that are weighing on me, when I unpack my burdens to him verbally, when I speak to God, God, I don't like this. That's where you can see David in the, some of the Psalms just going, God, this stinks, man. God, vaporize that guy. And as you can see this hot emotion in these some of these Psalms, all of a sudden you see him, the, the stress of the balloon come down and go, all right, God, don't kill him yet. You know what? Uh, God, help me. All right? you, you can see him decompressing his own balloon. And speaking is the way we do it. So you can pray or you can talk to another person about those things that, for instance, have you stressed. And what that does is reduces the balloon. Now I can go to sleep and it's not stretched like this. And the alpha waves are not using my creativity to try to solve all the things that are weighing on my mind. I've already reduced the tension on the balloon. So now when I lay my head down, it's not racing. The creativity's coming in and bringing other things in. And I don't have alcohol there to interrupt, to skip that process. Who knows what kind of ideas you're going to get. And I don't then have alcohol interrupting my entering into the deep sleep. So is alcohol inherently a bad coping strategy? No, it's, it's relaxing. Um, but too much, yeah, absolutely. It will ultimately interfere with what's going to be much better for you coping, which is deep, restful sleep. Okay, uh, so we have these teens because the question, the second question is, what do I do with my teenagers and their electronics, right? Or my college students and their video games. And what we're all having to do is kind of reintroduce ourselves and we can start to reintroduce our teenagers back into realism. All of those things are escapism. We've, we've all had to turn to certain things, honestly, just to make it through this. So what I would do is start to begin to introduce my teenager back into realism. What are the things they enjoyed, right? We're going back to resistance. What are the things they enjoyed before the world fell apart? Did they like to play baseball? Hey, man, let's limit your video games to an hour. Let's go out in the old back, backyard and throw the ball around. Did they used to enjoy going fishing. Well, literally put them in the car, drive down to the lake or your favorite stream and, and start fishing. Re-engage them with the other coping skills that they had when they were dealt more with realism. Uh, and, and now we're re-engaging them with the coping skills of resistance. Um, all right. We had a couple more questions that, that fell in a, in, in a sort of a contained bucket as well. And this is what was asked. What are the signs that it is time for me to pursue professional counseling, not just get advice from friends or a life group? Great question. And another question that asked that was similar to it, how do you know when to refer someone to counseling? Great questions. Just to be clear, I'm a proponent as a professional counseling counselor of professional counseling. And here's when you can either self-diagnose or help somebody else know when that might be a good option for them. Okay, if you think of resistance, resilience, recovery, professional counseling, I would put in some ways in the recovery phase. So here's, here's how we know. I would say you would go to counseling if either 
Um, when you're in resilience, so life hit you and you got knocked down, so to speak. If you're in resilience, you cannot access the skills of resistance. So think of it from a natural perspective. I've walked along and I've fallen down. So when I was a bas professional basketball player, oh my gosh, I, I, have, I have broken my ankles. I've torn ligaments in both ankles. I've sprained my ankles. I've twisted my ankles. I've rolled an ankle. Anyone that's rolled an ankle or had ankle damage can tell you this. Every time you turn your ankle, it feels like you're going to die. <laughs> I've torn ligaments and broken bones. And that actually does not hurt any worse than just stepping on somebody's foot and rolling it where there's no damage. The pain is the same. The question of whether I'm going to counseling or not has to do with the distinction between pain and injury. And how do I know if I'm in pain or I'm injured? Well, from a turning my ankle perspective, what, what you, the trainer would always say is get up and start walking. And when you get up and when you've just rolled it, oh man, it doesn't feel good. And then you can walk it off. The same skills that I used to do to run up and down the court like a graceful gazelle, um, I re-engage those and my body can do it. That's just pain. There's other times where I've gone to stand up and I felt like somebody shot me in the foot and my leg was not, it, it, I could not do what I've prior could do. Okay, well, great. Guess what? Recovery. That's time for the surgery. That's time for an ice bath. That's time for a different level of, of intervention. So when you think of your coping skills and life hit you or life hit somebody else that you care about, if they cannot re-engage those coping skills, then chances are that, that there's an injury to, to their soul, to their emotions. Hey, no problem. Just like it was not in any way shameful for me to go get surgery on my ankle or in any, any way shameful to go spend time with the trainer and develop a treatment plan, that, that is, there's zero shame when life hits us to go get our emotions uh, uh, treated. No problem at all. So first one would be if I can't engage the skills uh, that I used to be able to engage in resistance. Here's the other thing. Um, I think it's important to go to counseling if you don't have well-developed skills of resistance. So, some of us never learned coping skills. And that, that, that's okay for whatever reason along the, the growth process, either, you know, um, uh, gosh, any number of reasons. It doesn't matter, but sometimes we go, I don't have sort of the grit. I don't have, like when, when something disappointing happens to me, I, I, I don't know what tool to, to access to get through it. Counselors can help you proactively build the coping skills of resistance, right? So that would be another reason. And here would be the third one. It, when the balloon is too stretched, having somebody who's helpful at helping you talk to be able to reduce, right? Sometimes a friend can do it. Sometimes a pastor can do it, but not always. Professional counselors are, if nothing else, they're experts at helping you talk about you. And the process of discussing how I feel to another live human being or to God, but verbalizing what I'm feeling helps reduce the balloon. So if I don't have those interpersonal resources in my life, no problem. Go find somebody, pay somebody to be that for you for a season of time and help reduce 
uh, some of the stress of our emotions. All right, another uh, four questions that I'm gonna lump together, give an answer to, and then Pastor JT or Pastor James, we will jump into our lightning round. Here are four questions that were asked that I wanna answer together. And it is this, how do I know if I'm depressed? And the follow-up to that is, what's the difference between being sad and being depressed? Great question. Another question was, any parenting tips for parenting kids with anxiety and or depression? Another question, what are the best ways for me to support my friends or family struggling with anxiety or depression? And then lastly, if I have anxiety, does that mean I don't have faith? Great questions. And I'm, I'm bringing anxiety and depression into the same conversation because the, the treatment modality for them is exactly the same. You do the exact same thing for anxiety as you would for depression by way of treatment. So kind of the first part of this question, how, how do I know the difference between being sad and having depression? Well, th there is an actual clinical definition for, um, for depression and for generalized anxiety disorder. There, there's a diagnostic and statistical manual. It's in the fifth edition. Doesn't super matter, but there, there are criteria where, whereby one could say that qualifies as clinical depression beyond the scope of this conversation. But what I think will be helpful is if you consider your emotions like a pendulum, right? So we have kind of one arc here, one arc here. And if you, Jennifer, can you help them not turn the lights off on me? All right, sorry, I am in the back of my church and the life group that just finished in the front is shutting off the lights. All right, here we are back. Praise God for live. Um, anyway, all right, where we were, pendulum, right? So imagine a pendulum here that has the ability to swing within bounds. So let's call this side depression. Let's call this side anxiety. And when generally speaking, nothing's happened, I, I sit somewhere in the middle. And sometimes a sad thing happens in life. And as it does, God has given us the ability to, to, to feel in an appropriate way what things like sadness or things like stress or things like joy or things like happiness in response to what's happening in life. Our, our mood rarely sits right in the middle. It's, it's adapting and adjusting to what's going on around us. So from a depression perspective, when something sad happens, the pendulum moves. My dog died. Uh, I had a setback. I had a, a job loss. Da, 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 da. And the, the pendulum swings. The difference, what I would say from a lay perspective between all the range of sadness and what we would call depression would be the line of what we would say is debilitation. So there's a point where I'm sad, but I can still get out of bed and go to work. There's a point where I'm really sad. And you know, it might show in my face, but I can still get up and go to my kid's softball game. There's a days where, man, I'm just super bummed out, but I can still function in my day-to-day routine that I need to because I have enough coping skills of resilience to be able to, to still act and to think. But there are times where the sadness becomes so overwhelming that it starts to impact my physical behavior. I start to stay in bed way too long. I start to skip work. I start to disengage from friendships and relationships. And while my mood is dark, my behaviors go dark and my thinking starts to go dark. I start to wonder whether it's 
you know, the world would be better if I was in it, or if it'd be better off if I was left it. I wonder if I have any worth. I wonder if anybody even notices that I haven't been to school in a week. So debilitation is where I would start to say, now we're in the realm of depression. And by the way, that is a great time where, where my mood starts to significantly impact my behaviors and my thoughts. When that starts to happen, that would be the time for professional realm, right? That's where we want to probably move to recovery. On the anxiety side, the pendulum swings this way. We have normal things that cause us stress. Man, I got it's final exam week. Oh man, we got a big presentation at work. Oh my gosh, the NBA finals are on and my team is playing. Whatever it might be, there are things that move us in the direction of stress. Stress is fine. But there's time where stress becomes debilitating and acutely I can't think or behave in ways that I normally would and I slip into what we would consider like a panic attack where I literally, I, I can't even control how I'm breathing, right? That, that would be de debilitation. So stress becomes too much. My coping system becomes overwhelmed and I can't function. I can't, I can't behave or I can't think in a manner that I normally would. Um, hopefully that explains a little bit about sort of the spectrum. Remember this idea of a pendulum. How would I help? How would I help people? How would I help my kids? I think one of the greatest things you can do, parents, is help your children develop a wide range of an emotional vocabulary, right? One of the things that's been lost today is like, because we tell our kids that they're perfect at everything, the minute they're not, it's perfect or devastation. And there, there's a lot of steps between perfection and devastation, but our children don't have words for those. Right. And if I don't have a word for it, then I go to the word that I know and I match my life up to it. So the wider range of um, of an emotional vocabulary, sad, really sad, bummed out, feeling blue. Gosh, that stinks. Right. Any number of words that I can give to the scope of emotions will help my child be able to accurately determine where they are. And one of the best things you can do as a parent is to be able to help diffuse that stretched balloon because it can be there from stress. It can be there from, from sadness and depression where it's like one more sad thing. One more person looks at me the wrong way. One more disappointment and I'm going to slip over into debilitating depression. One of the things we can do as parents that's super important is if you can listen to how your children are speaking more than what they're speaking about. And before you ever answer the what they're speaking about question, before you ever solve their problem, what I'm encouraging you to do is respond to how they're feeling. Mom, guess what? Before I go, what? Tell me about what happened. I'm going to go, oh my goodness, you're excited, right? I can tell my own child, guess what? The largeness of emotion. And if, before I speak to what, I'm going to speak to how. Gosh, you seem excited. Hi, Junior, how was school today? Uh, all right, before I go, oh my gosh, what happened? I'm gonna go, I can see it was a tough day. Ooh, I'm, if I respond to their emotion, what they're gonna, what their brain codes is, oh, this person understands me. I don't know if you have any teenagers and you ever had this, well, you just don't understand. It's probably because we're dealing with what? And let me help you out. You don't understand their what. It's a crazy world out there but you can't understand their how because there's only so many things that people feel. Hey, I can tell that was hurtful for you. I can tell that you feel betrayed. 
can see that you're disappointed. I can see that you're very happy about that. If before you address what they say, you just put a pin in how, two things are going to happen. Number one, they're going to learn to, oh yeah, I'm not devastated. I'm just kind of bummed out, right? So choose the appropriate word. So they'll learn differences in how they feel and what they're going to do. Everybody, when they feel understood, they want to tell you more. So if you can first identify how they feel, gosh, I can tell that you're excited. Yes, guess what happened? Blah, 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 blah. And as I talk, diffuse, 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 shrink the balloon, right? Wow, I can see that you're really unhappy. Yeah, today was just dot, 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 diffuse, diffuse, diffuse. They'll, sh they'll shrink their own balloon. Okay, that was a lot. I'm sorry that took as long as it did. Um, oh, last, last part of that, somebody asked about, if I have anxiety, does that mean I don't have faith? No, no. Have you ever had heartburn? Does that mean you have don't have faith? No, it's a it's a it's a reaction. It's a it's a feeling that you have. And I, nowhere in Scripture are you commanded to feel a certain way. So I don't know that faith is the 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 thing that overcomes, you know, all of our emotions. Emotions are a response to how I think and how I act. So if I'm living by faith and I'm thinking faith-filled thoughts, I sh that those are coping skills to keep my anxiety in check. Now, I will say this. I mentioned sort of the pendulum. Sometimes, you know, in a perfect world, and none of us are perfect, right? In a perfect world, we just, in a vacuum, our emotions sit right here. But we all know people and might be those people who, even when life's good, the pendulum's kind of, you know, is already over here. Like the engine's just running a little hotter. The leg is shaking, the, the fidgeting happens. And you're like, what are you nervous about? Oh, nothing. And they're genuinely not nervous about anything. Their mind isn't racing, but the engine just runs a little hotter. So for someone like that, it only takes a stressful thing or two boo, before they cross the line and potentially into debilitation. If your engine runs a little hotter, no big deal. We all know somebody who's, you know, runs a little more glum. The, the glass is not just half full. It's only a quarter full. And it's not that they're a bad person or don't have faith. They just, you know, their, their mood meter is just set a little on the depressive side. I, I don't necessarily, personally, I'll defer that to your pastors. If it's a faith issue, I don't see that as, a, as an issue of faith. There are times where it can be, but as a general blanket rule, uh, I, would, I would not say that. All right, I'm going to kick it to Pastor JT or Pastor James. I'm not sure who I'm going to be talking to, uh, but I think... Man, all the rest of those questions, if we hit a lightning round, if you ask them fast, I will answer them at warp speed because several of the things I wanted to get was the idea of the pendulum, the balloon, and then restating the continuum of care. So in light of those, we're going to be able to crush a bunch of these answers. Oh, that was, uh, that's the only thing that really, it's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, I'm glad they didn't hear me because next time he would squash me. On the, uh, on the uh, depression thing, uh, a question came in, Keith, when it goes past depression, especially with teens, and they go to cutting, they go to suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts where it's really uh, a dangerous situation, what, would you, what advice would you give the parents in that situation? Sure. Um, I would say this. I would, uh, one, of the, one of the concerns we have we tend to have with, we're wondering if somebody's suicidal or if they're, 
you know, engaging in um, uh, uh, self-harming behaviors is we get super nervous to ask them. Uh, it's been my experience in all clinical research that suicidal people tend to be amazingly honest. Um, so you, you need to ask people very directly. If you care about them and they're in your life, you need to ask them very, not beat around the bush, not like I kind of have an answer that I don't want to get. So I'm going to sort of ask a softball question, ask people directly. And I'd look at them and go, I, it sounds to me like you're considering harming yourself. Is that in fact the case? And if not, it would be like them if they asked you and you'd be like, no, what are you talking about? Are you a weirdo? Hey, I'd rather have you be alive and think I'm a weirdo. I love you enough to, this can, you know, I know it sounds strange. I just love you enough to, to ask, right? So ask them very directly. And if they are, um, they'll tell you. Now, suicide is kind of an interesting, interesting is a bad word choice. What, one of the things we thought, everybody thought we were going to see coming out of the pandemic was, and throughout the pandemic was a spike in suicide rates. And it actually never materialized, praise God. We thought we were going to see it because we misunderstand the, the main factors of suicidality. There's tons of great research that's coming out of Florida State, um, some of the top research about suicide right now. And here are the three factors, the three primary factors that I watch for, any clinician should be watching for, and you as a parent want to watch for with regards to, to suicidality. Here's the first one, what they call thwarted belongingness. Thwarted belongingness. It means I don't have a, I don't have a, a people. I don't have a, I'm not part of a team. I'm, my friend group has alienated me. I don't have a place where I can say, these are my people. They know me and they love me anyway, right? I don't have a small group. I don't have a team. I don't have a peer group. When my belongingness, my attempts to be a part of the group constantly get rebuffed, that starts to become one of the warning signs. It's why we see, you know, some of the impulsive suicides with teenagers is because belongingness is like you the man, you're not the man. And, it, and the thwarted, it just, it's, it's so rapid changing. But what we want to do have is even while peer groups revolve and it's the most normal thing in, in adolescence is you want to have a few places where they always belong. They can always belong at a youth group. They can always belong at church. So even if it's not their favorite fun peer group and they really would want to hang out with these guys and mom makes me go to youth group yes make them go to youth group there needs to be at least a place where they have belonging this is particularly important when there's turmoil in the household and they're not even sure where they fit at home right thwarted belonging this here's the second one is perceived burdensomeness perceived burdensomeness i'm not even sure if that's a word but it sounds good for now so do i perceive that i'm a burden in other words uh, me being here is just a drain on you, right? When you start to feel that, when you start to see somebody expressing, you know, it'd be better. It's, it sounds like it'd be better if I wasn't here because I'm just a, I'm just a burden to you. That's a scary place to be, right? Third one is capacity for self-harm, which means that they've already somehow come to a resolution that, that they're willing to die or willing to harm. Self-harm is a sort of a gateway into, particularly with young people, into suicide because they've already developed a capacity to harm themselves. One of the reasons we see elevated suicide rates among returning veterans, people point to PTSD and issues with the VA, and I'm not saying those aren't contributors, but they're not the main thing. Here's the main thing. 
is the capacity for self-harm. They, before they went to combat, they had already determined they'd be willing to give their life. Number one profession for suicide is firefighters. They've already determined that they're willing to see their, to lay down their life. Once that determination is made, even in a valiant way, whew, okay, I, I've already somewhere along the line come to grips with the fact that I'm willing to have my life taken away. Sometimes we see this with uh, uh, people that have, you know, I was counseling somebody who had, had had several major surgeries and before each one, they had, to, they had to update their will because there was a chance they wouldn't survive it. And then they were expressing thoughts of suicidality. They had already come to terms with the, their capacity to die. Now you bring all of those together and it's a scary cocktail, but here's the thing. You wanna ask people directly because if they tell you yes, here's, here's the single most important thing you can do if you feel suicidal is to talk to someone you trust. The single most important thing you can do for someone who's suicidal is to either be the trusted person they talk to or get them in front of a professional that can be trusted that they can talk to. And here's why it's so important is because um, uh, nearly everything that you assume suicide is going to solve is actually not true. Everything that we assume suicide will solve is actually not true. Well, the pain will end um, for you, but it is going to start and last forever for every single person that you know and love. So it, the, the, somebody talking to somebody and having them go, no, 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 you're not a burden to me, right? This perceived burdensomeness. Well, I'm, you know, me being here is making your life harder. No, your absence is going to make my life devastated. Like they need to hear that from a real live person. And sometimes just the challenge on those three factors. I mean, when you talk to people who have either, who, who have been suicidal, been to the brink, and have not committed suicide, overwhelmingly, the number one thing they say is I talked to somebody, somebody cared enough to ask, or somebody cared enough to listen. Ask, listen, and if it's you that's feeling suicidal, talk to somebody that you trust. And those are the three factors, thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, capacity for self-harm. Next, told you, lightning fast, here we go. question on that is do you know of resources for people that help care for those with depression or are there recommendations you have when caring for some, for caring for someone with depression um recommendations for caring for somebody with depression is the, to not focus on the feelings focus on their thoughts and their behaviors right when because one of the you 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 can see a broken bone you can't see broken emotions. Um, so when we're not the one depressed, there's a tendency to go, well, stop feeling that way. But here's the problem. Our, our, our emotions are not like a thermostat. There's no gauge where I go, you know, feel blue today, feel happy today. If I want to feel differently. And by the way, when I, you know, I'm going to, anything I'm explaining to you now, this is exactly what we talk about in a professional counseling office, any professional counselor dealing with depressed or anxious people are going to talk about how their self thoughts, their thinking, their self talk, and their behaviors, right? So what if I was caring for somebody with depression, 
I would take them out and make them move. I would move them, get them out in sunlight five minutes a day, six minutes a day. We're going to go for a walk because what happens is our personality, our, our emotions, our thoughts, and our behaviors in a healthy person, even if a depressed, but a, a healthy, a non-personality disorder, they want to stay integrated. So when my mood is dark, my behaviors are going to go dark and my thoughts are going to go dark. And if I can change my behavior, let's go for a walk in the sun. Here's what's going to happen. Your emotions are going to go, no, 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 I don't want to, right? It's like a vampire heading out in the light. I can't do that. But if I can consistently behave, my mood will change. Um, if I can consistently think a different way, my mood will change. But trying to talk to somebody about feeling different, people don't have the capacity to change how they feel. It's an indirect thing. Um, resources, gosh, there's... Uh, if you go to the uh, association, American Association of Christian Council, Counselors, AACC, probably .org would be my guess. It's got to be a ton of resources there. Um, I, would, I would go to professional counseling level type resources. AACC um, is a professional organization. Um, there's lots of good stuff that, unfortunately, uh, Jared Wilson, Pastor Jared Wilson had created a ton of really valuable resources for those struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts. And then on National Suicide Prevention Day, he committed suicide, tragically, um, because just because we know about something doesn't know, mean that we know how to apply it to our own selves. Interpersonal relationships are hugely important. And if you're caring for someone that's depressed, while caring for them, it's important that you have somebody that cares for you. Uh, it's crucial that you have supportive relationships because it's tough. Somebody else's, you know, depressed people describe it as feeling like a dark cloud. And it feels like that dark cloud starts to overshadow your life. So self-care is very important. Good relationships, this coping skills of resistance, exercise, good rest, eating well are super duper important. Next. I think a lot of people could probably identify with this one. I've been working from home for over a mm -hmm. year now. Normally I've worked in a corporate office. I live alone and have no pets, although they plan to get a dog this year. I'm an extrovert. I've been struggled with isolation. I'm an emotional, aggravated, and grumpy. Hmm. Oh, wait a minute. I wrote this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I am doing, did my wife write this about me? Uh, sorry. I am doing all the things recommended, attending church in person, Bible devotional studies, prayer, life group Zooms, grocery and other shopping, eating out when I can. It definitely helps to get out and about, but I am still lonely. How can I eventually, how can I let, will this eventually go away and how can I cope with this? Is this my new normal? Okay, great question and you're right. We're, we're all in some version of this. Last week we talked about the, the passage in uh, Genesis 2, don't quote me on that, um, where it is not good for man to be alone. The the good, healthy, normal response to the abnormality of the isolation that we've all dealt with is to not be good. So if you told me this was, has been the most amazing year of your life, I'd probably say that, hmm, okay, right? But you're an extroverted person and you're, 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 you've been struggling with isolation. So it sounds like you're doing the right things. Will this pass? Yes. When? longer than you apparently want it to. And I don't, I don't mean that in a snarky, sarcastic way. I apologize if that came out this way, but 
it, it took a year to get to this place. Might take a year to get out of this place, right? It might, but before you start to really feel normal, will you? Yeah, you will. Because what you're doing is you're re-engaging all those skills of resistance that helped you to not feel alone under normal times. Times aren't quite yet normal and it's been really not good. I think sometimes we can think that, that solutions are gonna come quick. You, you know, I mean, gosh, I ate a salad for dinner tonight and I cannot believe I haven't lost 30 pounds, right? Like I gotta eat a lot of salads over a long period of time to, to begin to see the benefit of those in my physical body. And I've got to do a lot of the same walking, coping skills. You're, you're kind of in rehab, right? Where you've, it's been crazy and now you're just starting to walk again. You'll eventually be running. You'll eventually be jumping. You'll eventually be rocking and rolling. But to, to me, I tend to go, how long did it take to get in there? And I usually allow myself the permission to take that long to get out, do the skills, but it might take a year, but you will get there. Here's one. I have been diagnosed uh, bipolar for several years and have tried to live medication free each time with a disastrous result. Should I be trying to be healed of bipolar disorder? And how would I know if I was healed? Great question. So, so, there were, so there, were, there are there certain were. psychiatric disorders, bipolar being one of them, where the standard treatment protocol is medication. Um, and you, you mentioned that your results were disastrous when you tried not to. It's because that is how it's treated. And to go on and off and on and off medication with bipolar disorder uh, or to be off for extended periods of time actually leads to worse a psychotic disorder generally speaking. So um, that is the treatment plan for, for bipolar. And, and it's okay. So gosh, can I get healed? You, you kind of are with the medication, right? It'd be no different. And there's no, there, sometimes we, we've made uh, uh, mental and emotional health something where, um, you know, if I have to take medication, it means I'm weak or I don't have faith or, you know, I need to do something different and get healed. And sometimes the treatment we're receiving is the, the healing. If I had high blood pressure um, and to not take my medication would have massive physical uh, complications for me, why would I not take my medication? Now, can I pray and believe God and all that stuff? Eh, absolutely. But I can also take medication as part of my routine for my life because something's off in my body's biochemistry. 95% of the human brain, hear me, 95% of the human brain, I don't care who you talk to, 95 at most, 90, at minimum 90% of the human brain is a complete black box that we know nothing about. So how do you heal that? I, I don't know. It's treated. And you're probably doing very well on your medication. And there is zero shame any more than if I was having a heart disorder and took medication to moderate that or high blood pressure. There's something biochemically that's not working super great in your brain. Medication is a perfect response for that. That is the gold standard for how it's treated. And to not take the medication uh, will create complications for you. Last one, uh, mm -hmm. time that we have. 
How do you encourage young men to be free to express their emotions and to be vulnerable when they have been taught to be tough or they have been told men don't cry? Ooh, great question. This is, this is uh, right up your alley, JT, with the way you're forging incredible men up there. Um, to, to me, for men, and it's something that's been lost, is, is really good role models. Um, gosh, th- there's not been a manlier man that's walked planet Earth than King David, right? And he could cry at beautiful things. Uh, he could delight himself and dance in the presence of God. Yet that brother will take down a giant in a heartbeat, right? Men would line up and follow him and risk their lives. So I think there's a difference that we need to understand between masculinity and macho. Macho is something that's evolved, you know, chest bump, little boys don't ever cry. Gosh, there, there are things where little boys shouldn't cry over, but something that's beautiful, something that's... Uh, points to the goodness of Jesus. When I think of the story of my salvation, dude, I get weepy every time. When I think of the redemptive work that God has done in my marriage, oh, I want to fall on my face and cry like a baby because God is awesome and he takes your breath away. Yet I just don't know that anybody would accuse me of not, not being manly. So there's a difference between masculinity and, um, and macho. And I think one of the challenges uh, too is uh, JT that we don't have um, men don't have a lot of things that are purposeful anymore, right? We've reduced men's life to, um, uh, uh, um, to pursuing happiness. It's not a big enough, lofty enough goal for somebody to produce manhood. Being happy, um, seeking pleasure, those are way low bars for the masculine soul. And if I set high appropriate bars to be courageous, to be valiant, to be self-sacrificing, to lay down your life for another, right? You can, you can live to that standard and you have to be in touch with your emotions. You have to know what things make you afraid. You have to know what things touch you deep in your heart. You have to know what things you, you love passionately to live that way. I think we need to raise the bar for men and I think we need to have really good role models because what culture is suggesting makes somebody a man is just super lame to be honest said the same thing somebody if i'd have been asked probably (laughs) hey let's uh can we thank pastor keith real quick for As we, as we dismiss, Pastor Keith, will you just take a moment and pray for us, and then I'll end yes. us and dismiss us. Thank you. Absolutely. Father, I thank you for your dear sons and daughters. I thank you for their desire, first and foremost, to know you. And even through our conversation, I pray that they would just have understanding of how you've made them. God, I pray that they would walk free of shame of having to ask for help. I pray that they would walk free of, of shame of saying, I I I might need some recovery in this area. God, I pray that they would, um, God, that you would bless them for the time that they've had here. Would you call to mind, God, some of these concepts, some of these models, the balloon and the pendulum, God, and, and the three R's as they go through life. I pray that your hand would be on them. God, I pray that you'd guard them. We have an adversary out there who would love nothing more than to bring discouragement and discontentment and sadness and heaviness of soul. 
And God, if any are, are, are in that place and fighting, would you bring them great courage even tonight? God, I thank you that you are for us. And if you are for us, who or what could possibly stand against us? God, it's not an empty, just kind of grab hold of faith and deny what's happening. But the reality is you made us, you know us in our innermost being. And God, even at the deepest places of hurt, of pain, or of something not firing right, uh, God, you are for us in those places. And if you're for us through medication, if you're for us through counseling, if you're for us through your spirit, just doing a miraculous work, I say, bring it all. And God, you're awesome. Bless your dear sons and daughters. I pray that your hand and your goodness would be extended toward Bethel as a church and their leaders for their willingness to address such important topics in such important hours. Be with this amazing church in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Keith. To give Jennifer our love, thank you. For, I know you're an hour ahead, so thank you for staying I up. will, my friend. I'm going to go home and give her a hug. <laughs> okay. Uh, so next week, uh, uh, Pat, like uh, Pastor Bryson said, Pastor Devlin will be preaching this Sunday uh, on uh, finding purpose. And then next Wednesday, my wife and I, Shelly, will be, will be the follow-up, and we'll have some discussion on that in relationships. Okay, uh, so I'll, I'll end real quick. If you need prayer for anything, Pastor Kelly and I are here, and I can grab a few folk if we got uh, some more than that. Okay, let me pray real quick. Lord, just be with everybody as they leave. Thank you for this time. Uh, Lord, as Pastor Keith said, that we can attack such a uh, an important subject, Lord, that all of us have, either we've dealt with it or we have loved ones that have dealt with these things. So, Lord, thank you that you have the answers. Your scripture is still clear that you are the answer ultimately for all the things that we deal with. And Lord, thank you for all the doctors and medications and everything, Lord, that you provided for us in this journey. Thank you for everyone here. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You're dismissed.